Hey guys, thanks for listening to this episode of Speech Bubble on Never Sleeps Network. I just want to let you know that our sponsor, Harry Tarantula, is looking for people who do comics in Canada for signings, events, and Q&As. So if you do a comic, they want to hear from you. They're located at 6979 Young Street, and you can give them a call at 647-430-1263. We're looking for people like our past guests, Ramon Perez, Marcus Toe, Kelman Andrasovsky, Ricky Lima, Megan Carter, Hope Nicholson. If you do a comic, they want you. Email them at us at harryt.com or call them again at 647-430-1263 and ask for Leon or Jeremy and tell them Aaron sent you. Listening to Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one on one with Toronto's comic book luminaries, with your host, Aaron Broverman. Hello, fanboys and fangirls. Welcome to another episode of Speech Bubble. I'm your host, Aaron Broverman, and with me today is Nug. Nargang. Nug is a member of the Minnesota Wrecking Crew sketch comedy troupe. It's a three-time Canadian comedy award-winning sketch comedy troupe. Uh, he's been in many different movies, a Tuxedo with Jackie Chan. He was in Men with Brooms, How, how Canadian Can You Get? Uh, he's also been in The Love Guru with, with Mike Myers. But you probably know him best these days as uh, one of the three people involved in the Illusionoid podcast. He's actually heading to the Hot Docs Theater on June 15th to do a live version of CBC's podcast playlist with a bunch of their other shows. So welcome, Nug. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me today. So this is Comics on Comics. Uh, Generally, our show, we talk to people who are involved in the comic book industry in Toronto, but then every so often we do this little mini-series called Comics on Comics where we get comedians like yourself to just geek out and talk comics with sure. me. I guess I'm going to start where I start with all of my interviews and just to get a feel for where you grew up and what your background is like. Uh, well, where I grew up, I grew up in small town, southwestern Ontario, moved around a lot. I think uh, uh, kindergarten, grade one, we were in Elmira. And then grade two and three, we were in, oh, man, Newton. And then grade four, I was in uh, I went to Milverton, I guess. And then uh, you, you've never heard of these towns. It doesn't matter. And then in grade five, I moved to Clinton, Ontario. And that's where I did the rest of my formative years until I graduated high school. Clinton is in the middle of Huron County. Uh, you drive from Stratford and just keep going to Lake Huron. And about 10 minutes before you hit the lake, you'll be in Clinton. That's awesome. Yeah, so, it's a, a town of about 30. It says 3,200 on the sign, but I think that's very generous. So did you like fish a lot? Because uh, my, my grandfather was a big hunter fisher and I never took to it i was a hundred percent more a reader uh so but in the small town you know when we lived in the middle of nowhere like newton which is like a hundred people th- there was you know nothing 
there was nothing to do. You took the bus to school, you took the bus home at the end of the day, and then you were just at home forever. So what did your parents do that caused you to move around so much? My dad's a salesman, still is a salesman for a, a feed mill. And so he drives around, he can really live anywhere. And then my mom would get uh, various jobs, uh, accounting or working wherever she picked up some work and wanted to do something new. And so we just had to be in a central location wherever dad could get to all his customers the quickest. And uh, But my dad's like still driving down to the Niagara Peninsula and then pardon me, up to uh, like Owen Sound and then up to, you know, Ottawa area. Like he drives all over the place. Nice. So how do you find comics in small town Ontario? Well, that's the thing is that at the local store uh, in Newton, Ontario, at the Newton store, they had comics, but they were guaranteed 10 years older. Like they were from 10 years ago. So this was like 81 and I was reading comics from like 1974, 1975. And then I would uh, sometimes get to go into the big city, like going to Waterloo and we'd be at the grocery store and I'd see all these comics and I'd ask, could we get some comic books? And they said, yes. So the particular grocery store we went to wasn't a Marvel. They didn't carry Marvel. They really only carried DC. So I grew up as a huge and still am a huge DC comics nerd. Marvel never did it for me. It was always DC. So were those 10 year old comics that you were also reading also DC? A lot of them were, but they also had like Richie Rich and Hot Stuff and Casper. Uh, But uh, for me, it was the DC comics because I was familiar with the uh, Super Friends because of the three channels we got on our aerial at the farm, one of them would get Saturday morning cartoons and always had the Super Friends. So I knew Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman and Robin, and then you'd see Green Lantern and then you'd see Flash and Aquaman. And they were, you know, not on every show, but then there'd be like Apache Chief and uh, Samurai and El Dorado and and Black Vulcan. And I'm like, who are these guys? Yeah, so yeah, so you were, you were reading the comics expecting to see all these characters? Well, yeah, I'm reading the comics and I'm like, I know some of these guys. And then the TV show had different guys. But that, I think, was the kickoff for me because I'd be like, oh, Batman's on this again, but there's Samurai. Like, I'd get so excited about the guys you never see or didn't know. And then when I picked up new comics, it'd be all other people with Superman and Batman, guys you'd never heard of that I'd never heard of. I mean, they have that long history in the comics, but it'd be brand new to me and I'd be fascinated. Like anybody, I, I joke that anybody C-list or lower, that's my jam. Yeah, it's like it's like the Batman Lego movie, how they put all those like C-list. The fact that King Tut was in there, who was only a villain on the 66 show. That was the best thing about it. Exactly. Exactly. It's sort of like that. So what do you like about the DC heroes? Like, obviously, you grew up with them. So yeah, sort of your team. Yeah, my team was uh, Satellite Era Justice League. Like, and so fire, young Firestorm, young Power Girl, uh, Red Tornado is this is going to make no sense to anybody. He's my absolute favorite of any superhero. It's Red Tornado. I just like he's a robot that doesn't get any like I don't get a joke. I don't get what it's like to be a human being. And somehow he still has like a hot girlfriend and a stepdaughter. Like it just <laughs> it's very funny. to me, uh, And I really like him. But uh, it's Satellite Era Justice League. And I picked up there was a crossover series of comics where it had the white border on the cover and a central picture. But then it had three teams of Five. Okay. So down one side was Justice League. Down the other side was 
guys from the uh, Justice Society. And then across the bottom were five from the All-Star Squadron. And they were all battling per Degaton. And they split up in groups of three, one from each team, and went out and stopped him from doing things all over the planet. Wow, it sounds like one of those mini crises. It was like a minor crisis. <laughs> it was so cool. And I just was like, who are these guys? Like, you get into Justice Society, like Alan Scott and Wildcat and then Huntress, Earth 2 Huntress. But then, like, All-Star Squadron, who's Robot Man? Who is Firebrand? Like, all these weird... It was so much fun. It's so awesome. That's so cool. I mean, you're you're getting all these comics, and every so often you get to go in the city and check out, like, the new comics yeah. and stuff. Did you, like, hook up with any, like, fellow nerds when you were there? Like- no, I mean, I was like, this is when I out on the farm. That was when I was, like, seven or eight. So, no. Like, I mean, I would take these comics and bring them home. And my brother... Uh, he's only a year younger than me, but he was way more into sports than I was. So he'd have a ball game or he'd be out practicing in the yard, like throwing a pitch through a tire. And I'd be sitting somewhere reading my comics. And I don't care if I'd read it before. I'd read it over and over and over again. So what did your parents think of your hobby? They loved it. They just thought, oh, he reads. You know, like <laughs> they just didn't care. It kept me out of trouble a lot. Yeah. Uh, but we both, my brother would read the comics after I read them because I'd be like, you got to read this, you know. And then uh, I guess... One of those trips into the city, you know, you you see a comic on the shelf and those the covers when you're a kid, that's the thing that grabs you. Right. You literally judge that book by its cover. And uh, one of the comics was the crossover between DC and Marvel for um, Teen Titans and X-Men. Wow. And so I was like, what's this? It was a whole new group of people I didn't know. And then I started finding the old comics uh, at the store, which were like, I think I have an old machine man somewhere from like 77 but it's just a weird batch. Like, I got into X-Men through that. Right. So then I was like Captain America. And, you know, I'm seven or eight. And I'm like, oh, he's like, he's American Superman. Okay, cool. And then you'd see Iron Man. You're like, oh, he's like technical Batman. That's cool. Like, so I always compared them all. And then when I saw the vision, I got mad because I thought he was a ripoff of Red Tornado. Yeah, he is kind of a ripoff. Yeah, of Red they Tornado. say, you know, the, you can look at the chart online. And go, <laughs> Red Tornado is a ripoff of Vision. And then, no, he predates the vision by quite a bit. It's like the whole... Uh, X-Men thing versus Doom Patrol. Like, Doom Patrol was out, and then all of a sudden X-Men comes out, and they also have a leader in a wheelchair, and they're all freaks. And it's like, what's happening? They all just ripped each other off. Let's just not say who came first or who ripped off who. Everyone ripped each other off. (laughs) Right. Did you ever see Red Tornado in Supergirl? I know that he was, like, one of the first couple episodes of Supergirl. I did. I was mad that he looked like he was wearing paintball armor. Yeah. But, But I'm also, like, I'm also the guy who... Being mad about a fictional thing is dumb. Right. You know, take pride or take solace in that it's fictional. And since you're in the business, you know, like TV budgets and stuff. Well, yeah, not only that, (laughs) but if Red Tornado was going to be in an episode, he's not going to look the way I want. But they planted a seed that Lex on that particular episode kept his arm after he blew up. So I thought, oh, he can rebuild him and make him better so he doesn't look like he's in paintball armor. Right, right. Yeah. So I had hope. But I mean, regardless of all like how garbage it was or whatever, Red Tornado was on a television show. Yeah, was live like, action. Live action television show with Red Tornado. I went bananas. <laughs> like that show, I kind of fell off this season. But the fact that it has Martian Manhunter, Mon-El, like, give me a break. <laughs> exactly. When I was a kid, I would have gone nuts. Yeah. The fact Mon-El. The fact that they're even teasing the Legion of Superheroes with the ring, like that's <sighs> insane. That was one of the other comics that I saw when I was a kid was the issue 300 of the Legion that had the class photo on the front. It just said anniversary. And it was just every member of the Legion in a class photo with a 
what was his name? Proti, like this little yeah. weird shapeshifter kid, yeah. <laughs> little guy. And he was taking the photo, but it was every. And so I was like, who are all of these people? And I really, and then it happened right after the great darkness saga. Oh, nice. So then I went, well, I got to know about this. And then I went back to the store and it took me six or seven months to dig up all the, every issue of the great darkness saga. Right. And I'm like, what 10 maybe 9 or 10 and i'm doing this like i'm tracking down the oh i'm an idiot <laughs> it's crazy so like as you get older what made you stick with it is there something special about the comic book medium that speaks to you or superheroes as like a genre i always liked i mean i'm an improviser and i do a lot of like long form so story is really important so you have to know how to tell a story mm-hmm. and Comics always got me because the issue would tell a story, but it was like maybe part one of five parts of a way bigger story. Right. So you never felt like this didn't make sense because it always, this one issue had a story from beginning to end, but it was part of a bigger thing. Right. And uh, Star Wars was big for me when I was a kid. And I understood, like, there was a point where I got, oh, Empire Strikes Back was so bad. It was so scary and terrible and nothing's good. But you have to go there to get to the good part. Right. You have to, there has to be tragedy before triumph. And so comic books told me that story while I was reading them, but it's a, just a slower story. But then when Empire Strikes Back came out, you didn't know that there was going to be a third one. No. So it's but, like. But when the new one was announced, I was like, oh, and that like, cause all you want is like, everything's the worst. You get so depressed with Empire and you just go, boy, I hope they do another one because they have to fight. They have to do, you know? Yeah. And so in the comics, you know, there's going to be another one. Right. Like when you're a kid, you think comic books are going to go forever and never get canceled. Canceled. What's that? So you just hope like, oh, they got to get out of this. Things look dark, but they're going to triumph and the good guys win. And if the bad guys ever lose, they're still coming back for another day. somehow. if they go to jail, you know, they're going to break out. If they look like they died, chances are they didn't die, but they're going to be back. And that was I always liked that because the villains, I, I think early on, I was my brother and I had an argument about I think it was the Riddler. And he was like, he's the worst. He's bad. And I blah, blah, blah. And I was like, no, he thinks he's right. And so that I think it was early on, I was like, the bad guys always thought they were right. And if you just read the bad guy part of the story, you'd be like, yeah, that guy's right. You'd be on his side. But then you'd look at the good guy part of it and go, oh, no, because he thinks he's right. So he's doing all this bad stuff. It's like the mindset that would prepare you for like villain roles, right? Yeah, because well, exactly. you're always supposed to sympathize with the role that you're, yeah, that you're in. You gotta, yeah, you got to know. Like Lex Luthor thinks he's 100% correct in everything he does. Right. And I love that about him because you can just go, well, he has a point. Mm-hmm. And then the Joker thinks he's right and is insane. So it's that kind of fun stuff. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah. Storytelling's the best. And I, if you have the good protagonist and a good antagonist, that's all you need. And then you got the hope because they always they always come yeah. back, like yeah. you're saying. Hope on both sides. Hope that the good guys can beat the bad guys and hope for the villains that if they don't pull off their plan, they'll be back another day. Right, right. Totally. So as you got older, how did comics start to like fester and grow? I dropped off for a while because I mo- we moved around a lot. And when we moved to Clinton, uh, there wasn't really a comic book shop anywhere. Right. And then as I was getting into high school, friends of mine would drive to, well, when we had cars, friends of mine would drive to Stratford. And so I would go to the book vault in Stratford, which was a bookstore that had like a tiny comic section. So in high school, people were coming back with Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen. And I was, what is this? Like Watchmen got me because I fully recognized that they were 
Captain Adam and Blue Beetle, like they were just versions Carlton of them. Characters, Carlton yeah. character. I didn't know they were Carlton character, but I knew who they were. Sp- I'm like, this is who they were. Sp- this is clearly. And then I would go to the book vault and I started. Oh, what? What? I picked up a couple of things from like Vertigo that I didn't know that was part of DC until I read the the masthead in right. the comic. But I got into it. There was a Justice Incorporated, which was like a, a very odd thing or one off comics like a, a Vertigo one off. That was just a one shot comic book. And I was like, oh, it was called The Face. It was so good. And I was like, these are very different, weird comics. And I really got into Morrison's Doom Patrol because nice. I knew Doom Patrol. Right. Uh, and then once I started going to that store right near the tail end of my high school that's when preacher started and i started collecting preacher because i really liked the idea and then when i got to university oh i could get to a comic book store anywhere and there was a i went to york uh in the north end of toronto and just down the street there was this i don't i don't think it's there anymore it was a place called sci-fi world okay and it was in like a strip mall wow and it had uh The whole thing was sci-fi novels, like every Star Trek, every Star Wars, uh, you know, if the Stargate was out, they had novels. Uh, They had uh, figures, but also sculptures, uh, back issues. And so I was just like, can you, I was the first time I ever came up with a pull list. Can you save this for me every week? And then I would get on the bus and go down with some friends and we'd pick up our comics and other people in the residence I lived in traded comics. And my buddy Scott was a big uh, comic book nerd. And now he's like a librarian for the city. He works for the Toronto library, which I think is amazing. And it's crazy because like graphic novels are for a while now, they've been like really pushed in libraries. Yeah. Really like, yeah, I I, I really put Scott in front of that because Scott was like, these are books. These are literature. Yeah. You guys can read these. I think he was a big behind getting bone put in the kids' right. libraries and yeah. stuff. So, and now that's like a huge like scholastic. Yeah, thing. they're it's right like into mainstream. It. Yeah, right? that's awesome. So, what were you studying at York when you uh, went there? I because I came from such a small town. I just thought. I'd go to York and take English. And then uh, after my second year of York, I got into a joint program with Seneca College and I got into, uh, so in my days were at Seneca for radio and TV. And then my afternoons were York uh, for my English. I ended up going for an English degree. But I remember my first week at York meeting people when I was living in res and like I'm a small kid from out of town and I'd be asking around, uh, what do you take? What do you what are you here for? What are you taking in school? And somebody would say theater. And I would say, no, but for school, because it didn't. <laughs> I had no idea York had a theater department. Right. I had no idea you could take that as a thing like theater ended in grade 11 in my school because we my grad class was 80 kids. Like there's no way we were going to have a theater department. So I started auditioning for uh, non-theater department shows that were happening on campus. And then I got into a little company called Vanier College Productions and through them started like I, I was in the show. But we were the kind of company that would say, here's a hey, it's great that you're in the show. Here's your script. But here's a hammer and a paintbrush. We need a set by Thursday. And also you're going to make your own costume. Mm-hmm. So I learned how to do everything. I can light a show. I can mic a show. I can paint a set. I can build a set. I can design stuff. But I ended up being in a lot of the shows and then ended up being in like a like a long, like a two act play that was basically sketch comedy with a bunch of friends. And then once that happened, all we all kind of went, oh, we can do this. So we started doing shows downtown, sketch comedy shows. 
Right. So uh, John Catucci, who's on You Gotta Eat Here, uh, he's he was in that. Uh, our stage manager was Steve Del Balzo, and he worked at Second City for a long time. Ron Sparks, who's a stand-up, was in that group. Wow. We were all a part of the same group. That's awesome. Yeah, it was you amazing. Came up with some amazing people. Yeah, it was just this really weird bunch of guys that didn't go through the theater department and now kind of are all working. That's awesome. In, in theater and TV. Do you think that that's because you guys learned how to be so versatile and like do everything? I think so, but we got a lot of kicks at the can to try a lot of stuff like we tried a lot of stuff in the th- like we did romeo and juliet with 11 people and we just kept throwing on miss america sashes to say what characters we were and i'm pretty <laughs> sure at one point i was juliet's mom nice. and we had like a nice heart-wrenching scene and then the next year we did like a fake murder mystery that was so silly and so dumb and we had a great time doing that and then we did like this long sketch show i got to do equus which is like a big dramatic thing i got to be the major general in pirates of penzance like there's no role i haven't played That's awesome. and then i just got bit by the sketch bug and started doing sketch and then through that i got i didn't really know anything about improv and then steve our stage manager was like hey i'm helping out with the second city auditions you should come down crash these auditions and i did and i got hired so then i started working for second city wow that, that's amazing but so, we always wrote sketches about superheroes i always i wrote a sketch it was like gift of the magi with batman and superman where uh, batman sold the batmobile to get a cape cleaner and for superman and superman sold his cape to get hubcaps for the batmobile like it was so stupid but we always did it i was a big drama geek too and i think one of the like mask plays that we did because my drama teacher was very into like into masks mask. and like commedia dell'arte and mm-hmm. all that stuff i think i did like fear of falling which is like an issue of sandman yeah where, where he like helps somebody like overcome their fear and stuff yeah i was big into performing comics too that oh it's fine i love it because like you already have the storyboard right oh yeah the comic is basically a storyboard it's you like, know yeah what is it understanding comics the the comic book theory yeah uh, there's it's a, Scott McCloud it's Scott McCloud and he said the action takes place in the white spaces between the panels right. like it's a storyboard and then your head fills in the action like fills in the blanks between the panels right and you don't really have to like you get you get like rough blocking in the, in yeah. the case of theater right yeah. because you know. so you can follow a comic book like a storyboard if it's right. a, you know which I'm which you know they did for Watchmen you know they did for Scott Pilgrim right Exactly. So when you got into theater, were you sort of like, and you found out that this was something that you could do, was it sort of like, oh, well, I watch a lot of TV. I want to be in it. I was, I always, my dad always had old records of old comedy. Okay. So on top of having like uh, George Carlin and Flip Wilson, Jonathan Winters records, he also had a lot of Smothers Brothers. So I always liked the idea of a two-man routine or like Abbott and Costello. And I listened to a lot of the older stuff growing up. And then, you know, Monty Python would come on late at night on one of the channels and dad would be like, you have to watch this. It's very funny. And uh, I always liked working with other people. So instead of going towards stand-up, I moved towards sketch and later improv because I really like working with other people. Yeah, and you've performed with some pretty amazing people like Colin Mockery. Yeah, Colin, Martin Short, uh, Martin Short Catherine O'Hara, um, uh, Joe Flaherty, you know, like just a bunch of uh, Sean Collins, Scott Thompson, most, some, a lot of the kids in the hall I've been on stage with. Right. Just a ton of really fun people. And I just really like, you know, my biggest thing is in improv, you're always trying to make your scene partner look like a million bucks because you know they're trying to do the same thing. Right. So when I'm on stage with somebody like, 
Colin Mockery, he's already a million bucks. I'm not going to do any. He's going to make himself look like a million bucks. But what's cool is he's still making me look good, and I'm going to just make him look good. Yeah, there's nothing worse in improv than somebody who doesn't give or who doesn't. Yeah, yeah. you know, that's the classic blocking. The, like the main rule of improv, the, you know, they always say it's yes and. <laughs> say yes and advance the action. But mine is... Just say yes to what's happening. Right. Just accept that this is the world you're in. I always say improv's a big game of, oh, we're doing, this is what's happening now. Okay, great. Right. And so, you know, you come in, brandish a gun and say, give me all your money. You hope the other person's going to like, oh, sh- yes. Oh, I left my wallet at home. Like, whatever. But not go, that's not a gun. That's a banana. And then stop the whole scene from going anywhere. In terms of personality, you sort of have to jump in with both feet. Yeah. So what is it about you that sort of allowed you to do that? I think I'm, it's just me and my brother and my family, but my dad is the middle of 13 people. So every, like there's 13, I have 12 aunts and uncles and, uh, well, 24 technically, but, uh, I never getting up in front of people, never bothered me making a mistake never bothered me uh think worrying about what other people think i mean we all do to a degree right but i don't care if i look like an idiot because you know someone will laugh i always liked performing i always like not necessarily being the center of attention but making people happy yeah. i love doing that cool so when you got accidentally hired at Second City, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but pure accident, how did that make you feel? Like this was like Second City, right? Yeah, and I knew, and I'm a huge comedy nerd, and I know what Second City is. But it was like Steve said, "Come down, crash the auditions, and I'll get you in, and you, and we'll see what happens." <laughs> and I got hired, and they're like, "You're hired," and I literally said, "Great, what does that mean?" Because I had no idea what was happening, and yeah. I got into the uh, into their system. Uh, at the time, there was the main stage, six-person cast, a touring company that went across whenever they booked a tour out of town, they would go. And then this group of six people that were kind of the auxiliary, uh, like the bench. And so I got into that. And so it, it worked out that if somebody was in a, in Turco that couldn't do the show, if I was understudying them, I would go into the touring company show. But if someone on main stage couldn't do the show... And then their understudy and touring company couldn't do the show. Then I would do the show. Oh, so so like we used to joke. Yeah, I was third string. But we always joke. Oh, right where I love. Third third <laughs> string superheroes. But I always liked that because we used to joke that uh, if enough people uh, fell down the stairs or got hit by a bus, you're in. <laughs> totally. Totally. So what did you learn while you were there? Oh, I learned a lot because I was kind of flying by the seat of my pants with improv. Like Jim Clayton, who was our music director at the time, used to say, you're like a jazz musician who picked up a saxophone and knew how to play it and knew how to follow along with everybody, but you can't read music and you don't have any training. And so I was like, yeah. And so I learned to, through Second City, I got to take some classes and rehearse, you know, practice, you know, with these guys. I got to like sharpen my skills a lot. I got to, you know, oh, I keep doing that thing and that's not a good thing in improv. I'll stop doing that thing. Right. And so I basically was already improvising and I didn't know the basics. Right. So I got a chance to take some workshops with some big time improv names, uh, Keith Johnstone and uh, Mick Napier. And it was like, for me, it was like going to church. I picked a little bit out of all the things I learned. Like you, you, when you go to church, you're like, not all of this is good. There's a couple of things that are okay, but not all of this is. And so I would go to these improv seminars and be like, oh yeah. Yeah, no, I don't like all of that. I like bits of it. So I'm going to keep the bits I like. Smart. Keep the bits I like from this one. You you go everywhere. Because to me, following one religion or following one improv guru blindly 
just shut your eyes to everything else. So I was like, I've got to learn. I got to know what I'm doing. So I'm picking little bits out of everything. And I find, and maybe you find this too, that like the more of like a pop culture knowledge base you have, like the easier it is to Ye- do improv. Yeah. Cause you're going to ask the audience for a suggestion. Like, what do you think? What's, what's on your mind? Like last night we did a show and I was like, what's in the news? Like what's a current event? And we wrote down all these current events, but do I know anything about George Clooney having twins? No, but I know who George Clooney is. Right. So I, I he have was to, yeah, it's broad <laughs> strokes. Like uh, what helps in improv is broad strokes. Know a little bit about everything going on. Yeah. And then if you get really specific into one thing and that happens to be something, somebody else, you're going to look like a superstar. That's so cool. And you got to like think on your feet, which is like the worst fear for some people. For right? some people. Yeah. You know? But yeah, I mean, people, a lot of, uh, you know, Joe Bank Teller, a lot of uh, regular Joe Job guys take improv because they want to get better at public speaking. Right. Or they want to not be so scared when they have to have a conversation, you know? Yeah. Uh, but for me, improv is just like, it's what we do all day. I don't know what I'm going to say to you next. I don't know what you're going to ask me next, but I'm going to answer your question. So, so I'm not worried. So what's the difference between just doing improv and being professional in improv? Oh, it's really hard because it's not like it pays well. Uh, professional, I don't know. I, I, I mean, a professional improviser still does shows for five bucks, still might not pay the bills, but does other things. But improv is the... Colin said to me once, he keeps improvising because it's like his, it's going to the gym for him. Right. If you stop going to the gym, it's really hard to get back into it. And there are some improvisers I know who quit for a long time and then are scared to get back up on stage. But for me, it's like working out. I do three or four shows a month of improv and it's just like, yeah, I'm just going to go out there make some mistakes, try to make better mistakes next time. I'm not, if it goes well, great. We'll never remember that show again because we made it all up. And if it fails, great. We made it all up. Who cares? It'll never be seen again. And it's like a skill, right? So you get faster and better and yeah. that sort of thing. And over the years, there are moments I've done shows where somebody says something to me and in my head, I think, and I'm slow down and I go, what's that? Oh, here's, here's a great line. And then I'll say it. And in my head, that took five, 10 seconds to say. And somebody else after the show will say, that was so quick. Like time slows down for me for some reason. Right. When I can see a good line, my brain kind of slows down, but it's still in real time. And I think through it. It's very weird. Yeah. I've lost like five seconds in trying to say a line once. And then somebody was like, you came back so fast. Yeah. And you're like, really? Oh, I didn't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So then from improv, is that how you started to get roles in television and those sorts of things? Yeah. Yeah. I started, uh, I started um, doing a sketch with a partner, Perry Perlmutter, who's a comedian uh, now. Uh, but Perry and I met at York as well through Vania College. And we started doing a two man thing called Nug Mutter. And we got uh, nominated for the Tim Sims Encouragement Award forever ago. And then uh, from that, we did a show at Second City. There was an old show called The Midnight Howl. And it was at midnight on a Friday. And anybody could book the Midnight Howl, and you would be on at midnight on the main stage at Second City, doing whatever you booked your show is. Right. So Perry and I booked the show, and it was on this wide stage at the old Fifty Six Blue Jays Way, which is now a condo. Uh, but the it was a big wide stage, and there were only two of us. So the very first thing we both did was like, well, we can't just use this. Like we set some chairs up on other parts of the stage. We'll use as much of the stage as possible. Right. And the stage manager was our friend, Steve and Steve knew our stuff. And so we had a little tech sheet, but he was like, do it over here. Let's do this one over here. And then you guys can run over. Great, great, great. And we figured it all out. So 
we did a show and it went well. We thought we did well. We sold a lot of tickets. We had a good time. And then two weeks later, I had gone full time at my whatever job it was. I'd just gotten full time. And there was a call at the office. And I was like, who knows I'm here? Like, I didn't have a phone. Uh, I didn't have a cell phone yet. And so the, the phone rang at the office and they asked for me. And so I went to the office. The boss was like, call for you. And I go, I guess. And it was Perry's brother, Lorne, who's an agent. Wow. And he said, through a weird set of circumstances, NBC had come to see the main stage that night. And they thought, we'll see the beginning of the first show, the first act of, of the first show at Second City. We'll go get dinner and then we'll come back in time for the second act of the second show. Right. But they ate, they took too long. And when they came back, they saw Perry and I and they liked me and they wanted to give me an audition for Saturday Night Live. Wow. And so I was like, oh, my God, I didn't have an agent and I'd been doing sketch comedy for six months. And so he said, I'll be your agent for this if you want. And I said, OK. And then he put me through the ringer and booked me on every open mic night in town, which is for standups to do sketch by myself, because the audition was do four minutes by yourself and do three impressions of famous people in three characters. Right. You got to do characters you in gotta, four minutes. Yeah. And so I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'll put this together. And so I practiced all week and I was like coming home at two in the morning, getting up at six to go to work because I just gotten a full time job. I told my job boss what was happening and they're like, oh, I guess go for it. So, OK. What and was your full time job? I was working at the CNIB Library for the Blind. OK. <laughs> and I was making uh, books that they would always do books on tape at the time. There weren't CDs or MP3 files or anything like that yet. The technology yeah. hadn't reached us yet. And uh, I would be in the at the printer at the computer and I would make print labels and Braille labels f- on a Braille printer for cassettes of McLean's that would go out every week. And I would also take every now and then I take a shift on the duplicator machine. So we'd make like 40 copies of a cassette at the same time, high speed right. four tracks. Cause we had a special recorder and our tape recorders. You could flip a switch and get side one, flip the tape side two, flip the tape, flip a switch side three, flip the tape side four. So did somebody have your voice in an audiobook? Somewhere? I used to, no, I used to just be in the, like the business end, like okay. the, I'm the physical production end of the stuff. Okay. But then I did a couple of, uh, CIBC kids audio magazines. And I used to write sketches for the audio magazine, like doing magic uh, for kids with somebody else going, this is an audio thing. Magic isn't going to work. And I just had like sound effects and it was really dumb and fun. That's hilarious. Yeah, awesome. it was great. So yeah, then I went to New York uh, for uh, Saturday night live and that year, uh, Far- Chris Farley had passed away. Okay. And then that summer, uh, myself, and I was a much bigger guy then, uh, myself and Horatio Sands were the only two big guys auditioning. And we saw each other and we're like, well, it's one of us. And uh, then we went out drinking after the auditions and uh, he got the job and I didn't. I just saw him like about a year ago in Chicago and he was like, hey, man. Hey, You're that like, guy. He, yeah, we totally, he totally remembered me. It was That's great. That's awesome. Yeah. So, what is that like? Because you're you're in front of Lauren, or Lauren's, how does it work? Lauren's in there, but there are maybe about 15 people, and then there's a camera. That's beaming you to L.A. for people who can't physically be at the auditions. Okay. And it's if you're a comedian, it's the toughest room. No one's laughing. 
uh, unless it's a nervous laugh for you. Right. And so I, so <laughs> I did my, God, I don't even remember what impressions I did, but I remember finishing and I remember if like, if I had four minutes, I finished in three, like I was just burning through my stuff so fast. And then right at the end, uh, it was, I was auditioning on my birthday in, in New York and I'd never been to New York. Like it was crazy. And so I, after I was done, I realized I'd gone so fast. So I said, uh, thanks for having me. I just wanted to say today's my birthday and I think you all know what to get me. <laughs> and they laughed and I went, awesome. I'm happy with that. <laughs> I mean, awesome. If I have, if I have any other story to tell in my life, I'm happy with that. That's awesome. Uh, did, so you didn't get the call. No, I did not. I didn't even get the call to tell me I didn't get the show. <laughs> I didn't get any kind of call. Yeah. You were just like, uh, I guess I didn't yeah, get it. And then I, and then I came back and went right back to my full-time job and pretended it didn't happen. I kept doing sketch comedy with Perry and then I got hired by second city and, uh, started working with the touring company and going on from there. And it took me a long time to take an agent on. I just never thought it was a real thing I could do. So what era of SNL was this? Like late nineties? Late nineties. Yeah. Okay. 99, 2000, okay. like right in there. Okay. Sounds good. Yeah. You're listening to Speech Bubble, and we'll be right back. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula. Go visit them at 6979 Young Street for their games nights. They've got Warhammer, they've got Star Wars miniatures, they've got Dungeons and Dragons, and they have board games nights. Go to HarryT.com for the schedule and enjoy some serious gaming. I also want to ask you before we get too far into your career, like where did Nug come from? Oh well, uh, my last name is Nargang. Okay, and people historically have had a really hard time pronouncing it. It's N A H R G A N G. Uh, if you just take the H out of it, it's Nargang. Like it's for me, it's phonetically not impossible, but that H really throws people. <laughs> and I've had Nahagrang, Mahagramang as a mistake. Like it's just the worst. And when I moved to Clinton in grade five, there was like a weird perfect storm of things. Uh, no one could pronounce Nargang. Uh, there was another fat kid at the school whose nickname was Burger. Mm-hmm. So the food thing was kind of established already. And then Chicken McNuggets were brand new at McDonald's. So it started being like Mike Nargang turned into McNugget turned into Nug. Right. And so I've just been Nug since grade five. I thought I'd get rid of it when I went to high school, but I went to high school with all the people I went to public school with. And then there were a bunch of kids from out at other schools that were like, oh, you're Nug. We've heard of you. And then, you know, the drama teacher was like, you're doing a play with me, Nug. And I was like, okay, I guess now I have something to do. And it's sort of alliterative with your last name. I guess. Yeah. And then and then when I got to university, I thought maybe it'll go away. And I think for the first for Frosh Week, my first year at York, I was like Big Mike from the 10th floor. And then after Frosh Week was over, I still had the first day off. Like I didn't have school on Monday and I got a knock at the door in res and it was one of the hottest girls from my high school at my door. Crazy. And I went, hi. And she goes, I live in this room two floors up. I missed all of Frosh Week. And all I heard was talk about Big Mike from the 10th floor from some small town in the middle of nowhere. And I thought that's got to be Nug. And so then I was like, oh, I'll introduce you to everybody. And then we went out that night for drinks and she was telling stories, Nug this, Nug that. And it stuck all over again. That's amazing. Yeah. I don't know if I can cash a check to Nug, but I think my bank knows that that happens sometimes. And it's perfect if you're part of the union because you don't have to be one of those guys who like has to add a name to your name. No, I do it. I have it on my sheet. Like make the checks to to Mike, but Nug, like you can put Nug on. It's on my actress stuff. Right, right. But then every now and then I'll get mailed to like null nug like no first name nug and i'm like no i gotta call actor and fix that so yeah yeah yeah. but it's like 
I always kind of feel sorry for those guys who had to use like their middle name because there was like oh, another, yeah, there's already there was another, another one. one. Yeah, I know yeah. there's not another Mike <laughs> Nargang, but there's for sure not another Nug Nargang. Yeah, so. yeah, totally awesome. So, so you're you're working in Second City. Yeah. Because you auditioned for SNL, did things start to take off? Not really, okay. no. Because, uh, you know, it was such a weird thing. I think there were three of us in Canada that went to that audition and none of us got hired. But uh, we, you know, we we had a nice time. We hung out with each other and then we came back to Toronto and just went back to our lives. I went back to my full-time job and doing sketch on the side. Right. And then uh, I finally said yes to the agent, started doing some commercials. And when I first said yes and I started first started going out for commercials, I booked a ton of stuff. Right. And then it was from there I started doing more TV and, uh, and a little bit of movies here and there. Yeah, yeah. I should have I should have wished you a Marushka Hargitay. Oh, God. <laughs> I was thinking about that the other night. I have so many friends. We were all in the Love Guru, yeah. but like 20 improvisers I know. Mike Myers just hired guys he knew from Second City. Right. Like he, Mike always came back to Second City Toronto because he was good friends with the janitor whose name was Achilles. So he'd always come back and say hi to Achilles. If he had a new show, he'd bring a poster to Achilles or bring a toy to Achilles. Right. And so he would come by Second City and you know everybody knew Mike and so he, he would like oh this is the touring company oh hey guys he'd meet us all meet us all and then a bunch of us got these bit parts in the love guru and so we did a day I did a day I showed up I had one line I had one line in the love guru so I was like I'm happy to get the day and get paid there's no way I'm gonna end up being in this movie it's one line it'll get cut for sure so we get there for the first day and I'm there for 12 hours and they don't use me and they're like we're gonna have to come back tomorrow and I'd never really experienced this before and I was like wait, do I get paid for this whole day? And they're like, yeah. Oh, great. (laughs) So the next day I came back and a whole day and they didn't use me. And then it wasn't until about a week later, they called and said, you're coming back for a third day. We're for sure using you today. Right. I get on set and there's all these horror stories of the love guru. Mike Myers was having a hard time. He was, you know, he's, I'm sure he was because he was a producer and in the scene. So while he's trying to be an actor in a the scene, they'd yell cut. And then somebody would come up and say, you know, hey, Gatorade doesn't want you to use the orange coolers. So what color do you want the coolers to be painted? And he goes, I don't care. And everybody's like, hey, take it easy. And like, this is after Austin Powers. This is after Austin Powers. Where he's trying to make magic happen yeah, again. again. And it's hard. Yeah. It's hard. And he's under a lot of pressure. So if he's in a bad mood, suck it, everybody. He's in a bad mood. So... They then they're walking me to set in the Air Canada Center and there's like two people like an angel and a devil on my show. And they're like, if you see Mike Myers, don't talk to him. Don't engage him. Don't look him in the eye. Don't even say hello. Just don't say anything. Just keep walking. Keep walking. And I go, yeah, okay, fine. And here he comes in full costume with a whole bunch of people like we're crossing and I see him and he goes, hey, Nug. And I go, hey, Mike. And he just keeps on. They're like, well, you didn't say you knew him. And I go, I didn't. How's he going to remember me? (laughs) So we get to set and I have my scene with Jessica Alba and I, you know, chat with Jessica Alba. I just yell at her, tell her you suck. And then the scene's over and I go home and I think, well, that was fun. Get three days pay and I'm not even going to be in this movie. And then I end up being in it. Like my shot, I have friends who fully got cut out of the movie. Wow. And I somehow that one line ended up staying in. Your life seems like a endless series of like lucky happenstance. It's an endless. (laughs) I could. My stories are very interesting. Like I've really like for the times I've had bit parts and whatever I was in, um, Owning Mahoney it was shot yeah. here in Toronto. A true story, but a banker who embezzled all this money Amazing out of the bank. Amazing movie, with yeah, and, Philip and Seymour, Seymour Hoffman. So I get I get hired to be a parking attendant at the beginning of the movie. My scene happens while the opening credits are still going. So I get to the set. I'm a parking attendant, and the scene is he parks his car. I give him hell about his crappy car. Like I'm like, hey, nice heap, you know. And yeah. he's like, ha, it works. And like that's the whole scene. We get to set. And I'm in my parking uniform and I get over here and they're like, uh, 
oh, uh, Nug, this is Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I go, oh, hey, Mr. Hoffman. And he goes, yeah, so uh, what do you think? I go, what, what do I think about what? And he goes, the scene. And he's asking me what my thoughts are on this four-line scene. And yeah. I go, I don't know. I'm a parking attendant. Uh, I'm a big dude. You're a big dude. You have a nicer job than me, but your car is about the same as mine. So I, you know, I, I must do this every day. I probably say something to you every day. And we have like, that's our, I think we're buddies. And you're like, oh, it's that guy from the parking garage. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, all right. And walks away. We did three takes of it. Probably the first day of filming for the movie. And we were done. I was like, thanks, everybody. Yep, thanks. Sign out. Off you go. A month later, I get the call to come to the rap party. Wow. And I was like, wow, I had like two lines. Why am I coming to the rap party? So I go to the rap party and I'm early and no one's there. So I duck over to Second City with my girlfriend at the time. And we duck over to Second City and go, it'll be easy. We'll just pop in for the improv set. And then by that time, the party will be going and we'll head over. Yeah. So we pop in to watch the end of the show in the improv set. And it turns out William Shatner's at the improv set. And everybody's like, is Shatner getting up on stage? No, but he'll be there. Cool. And then they're like, do you want to play? And I go, yeah, it's Shatner. Of course I want to be seen. So I get on stage. We have a blast. Shatner comes back, talks to us for like an hour. Just the nicest guy. We all got our pictures taken with him. Could never, we'll never forget that night. Right. Then I go to the rap party with my girlfriend. And it's in full swing. We're late. Like the party's just party, party, party. And we walk into this place and the party's karaoke. And Philip Seymour Hoffman is singing. I think it's La Bamba. I think he's singing La Bamba (laughs) on the karaoke stage. And then he finishes his song, sees me, plants the mic, walks right up to me and goes, Nug, you're late. And I go, I had two lines with you. Like, who, how do you even remember me? He's like, you are great. And I go, oh, this is my girlfriend. Oh, nice to meet you. Where were you? And I go, well, we came early. No one was here. So we went over to Second City and we did the improv set and William Shatner was there and we got to hang out with him after the show. And he said, you got to meet William Shatner? And I said, haven't you? One would think you would have had more of an opportunity than me. And then the director came over and was like, Nug, you're late. And he was like, Hoffman yelled, he met William Shatner tonight. And then the director goes, you met William Shatner? And I go, why have you guys both not met William Shatner? That's and it was hysterical. So like, I have all these really dumb stories, fun moments from just having like one or two lines in a movie here and there. Do you think you're just like an affable guy that like people just like? Lo- yeah, I don't like? care. I, I don't care about talking to strangers. I don't care if you're a celebrity. I right. don't care if you're like a mega movie star. I don't care. I will shoot the shit with you about anything. Right. I'll shoot the shit with the bank tellers at the bank. You ever walk into a bank and there's nobody in the bank and as soon as you walk in, you're the only one and three tellers turn and look at you. <laughs> right, exactly. And like instead of being awkward, I go, well, don't all fight. Yeah. I'll go to one of you, totally. but I can't go to all of you. And they all laugh and they're like, I'll take it. Great. Sorry, everybody else. I'll come to you guys next time I come into the bank. So do you think that like improv helps you be more charming in life? I don't know about charming. I mean, charm is very subjective. Some people probably think I'm a prick, but uh, <laughs> but it does help. I mean, improv really helps you in any situation. Right. Like, you know, things are bad. Cool. We'll fit. The, we'll think a way out of it. Things are good. Great. We'll have fun and we'll find a way to have more fun. Right. Right. That's awesome. I noticed, too, with a lot of the research that I did, your through line also seems to be you do a lot of geek stuff, too. Like, you have... Oh, yeah. There's, like, a lot of, like, geek comedy. I have never, ever... The phrase guilty pleasure does not apply to me. (laughs) I just... Pleasure is fine. Uh, Being a kid, I loved Weird Al. I loved old comedy. I loved listening to old records. Uh, I I think Meatloaf is a great artist uh, because he's just so over the top. I think clown stuff is really cool. I love theater. I love puppetry. Like, and then when you get into nerd stuff... 
Star Wars and Star Trek, I, I honestly, they're both pretty good for me. I like them both. I knew of Doctor Who and it was an old British show. And so I know there's a new Doctor Who out there. And I know the like the broad strokes, but I don't watch a ton yeah, of Doctor I Who. Of Doctor uh, I find Doctor Who fans are like the bullies of the nerd world because they're so mad at you for not watching Doctor Who. <laughs> they make fun of you for it. But it's I just love that stuff. I like sci-fi books. I'm into time travel. Like I read all about this stuff. And I really like that stuff. When I was a kid on a Saturday, Friday, Sunday nights, I used to listen to, we didn't get Chum in the small town I was in, but we got uh, FM 96 out of London. And on Sunday nights, they would replay Chum FM's uh, comedy show Mm -hmm. on the radio. And then right after that, Theater of the Mind. And they'd replay two old radio episodes from the 50s. So I'd listen to The Shadow or The Black Museum with Orson Welles or whatever. And so I loved that stuff. We moved to- Superman. uh, Old Superman. Oh man, the Superman (laughs) serials are crazy. They had to invent kryptonite for the radio. Yeah, yeah. So that he has some weakness and you can hear it. It's this radiation noise. <laughs> but I listened to all of that stuff growing up. So I have this real, there's no real thing that's like, oh, I can't watch that. That's too weird. There's no too weird to me. Right. I, I love Planet of the Apes. I love the alien movies. I like all that stuff. So what are you digging now? Because it seems like now, like the geeks rule pop culture. Yeah, the geeks rule pop culture almost too much. And they're ma- they're remaking a lot of stuff that, that doesn't need to be it remade. It doesn't need to be remade at all, but the the I'm sure the studios are like, "Oh, cool. We'll make money because the geeks will go see anything." Right. Uh so what I'm what I like right now is I like the chances sci-fi is taking on TV. Like I really like Stranger Things, which is just a nod to every other show ever made, but done in a real fun new way. Yeah, it's very like Steven Spielberg. Yeah, it's like old school E.T. Yeah, yeah it's really fun. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I'm lucky enough to have a, I worked on with a couple of people on the boats uh, when I worked with Second City. We went uh, on a cruise. We went. I went on a, like a four month cruise, came home for a week, went on another four month cruise. And I was entertainment on a ship. And one of my shipmates is Randy Havens, who's the science teacher on Stranger Things. Wow. So he's like. He did season one and then got booked for a billion conventions. And he was like, I've never been to a convention. I go, oh, well, here's what you need to do because I've been to a ton. So then he was like, oh, man, your tips are really helping. And I go, great. Get me into your convention. To fly me out to Atlanta and let me come to a convention with you. So what did you tell him? I told him uh, to pack a bag with hand sanitizer and vitamin C. Because you're going to get con lung because you're in that building forever and there's never, ever, ever any good ventilation. And everyone shaking your hand. Everyone shaking your hand. Even if you don't want them to. Yeah, be nice. (laughs) Always have a smile until you go behind the curtain. Right. Once you're done and you walk behind the curtain, they'll see you go behind the curtain. But once that curtain stops moving, go ahead and say, oh, fuck. Like, then roll your eyes, then swear. But just be happy because everyone will say, that guy's awesome and you'll get hired more. And he's in the new Godzilla movie. Right. So yeah. I'm like, this is the best for him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if you do a really good panel, like, I always find oh, that yeah. John Barrowman imp- has one of the best panels ever. Yeah, and Randy's an improviser. Yeah, yeah. And he's also one of the filthiest guys I know. But he's the nicest guy on Stranger Things and he's the nicest guy at these cons and he's just got a quick mind and he's awesome. Right. So his panels are great. It's like my buddy uh, Christian Brune. Christian's on Orphan Black. Yeah. And it's the last season of Orphan Black. But when he goes to the conventions, he he improvises with us and he's on it. He'll do dumb stuff. He'll pull his pants down. He doesn't care. The crowd goes nuts. And the great thing about conventions too is like long after the show is canceled, you can still be oh. squeezing the or the yeah. convention. The, that new Star Trek is shooting in town and all of us are like, I just want an audition to get a one line part on Star Trek because if I book a one line part on Star Trek, I'm working conventions for the rest of my life. That was like me and American Gods. Like, mm. New Gaiman is here. I gotta do it. I gotta go. <laughs> exactly. That's amazing. So 
I guess, how do you keep the geekdom in your comedy? Like, we want to, I want to talk about Illusionoid. You mentioned all these yeah, so old, like, the serials that you're, yeah. that you're part of. I re- and and uh, Twilight Zone was always on when I was a kid, and Twilight Zone was a big influence, too. Right. I love that old Chris Hardwick joke that every episode of uh, Twilight Zone could be called Nice Try Asshole. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, oh, you wanted to read all the books? Well, now your glasses are broken. Nice try, asshole. Um, so I, that kind of stuff, Doomsday, like everything's the best, but with a price. Right. Uh, so there are a ton of old radio shows like that. And I have a, my dad shelled out for a couple of old satellite radios that you can mount in your cars. So we had XM and there is an old timey radio. It's called Radio Classics. And there's a channel in the car and I just devour that channel. It's their sci-fi Western comedy. You can hear the beginnings of what's on television now on the radio in 1945. Wow. It's just amazing. And so I was really, I really listened to that stuff. And then I started improvising uh, with Paul Bates and Lee Smart, who are both Second City alumni. And they're both nerds, too. So they love all that geeky stuff. They love Twilight Zone. They love, like, Paul's devouring Twin Peaks right now. We just love that stuff. And we found when we were improvising together, we would aim everything to doomsday. Right. So we joked that every scene we do, well, we know what's going to happen. This isn't going to turn out. They'll think everything's great, but there'll be a price. Right. So every scene we improvised with that in our heads, we didn't aim it that way. But once we got to a, this is the best, we all figured out how it was going to go bad. Right. So we would do these little five, 10 minute scenes uh, in like an improv uh, tournament. Globehead at Bad Dog is a yearly improv tournament. We won Globehead one year and then we won it again. And then we won it like then we're like, oh, well, we're done. And then I when I was away on the cruise ships just before I left, I thought, I wonder if we could improvise an old radio show like improvise in that style. And then afterwards, one of us can add sound effects and make it sound like an old radio show because they always had ambiance. And if you're at a train station, you heard the train station in the background, yeah, yeah. you'd hear the train whistle. Yeah. Somebody would drop a bag. You'd hear clunk, like just yeah. all that. It always stuff. sort of found it always sort of seemed like crinkly and like, you know, like yeah. somebody was speaking through like an old microphone. Yeah. Well, that, and that's just because of the quality of the recordings yeah, now. Yeah. I mean, they're yeah. losing their magnetism. So better digitize them all, even with the crackles. Yeah. So then I went away and away on the cruise ships. Your life on the cruise was you get one day off the ship every week like you would go to port and you could get off and walk around in skagway alaska but then at the end of the week you'd this week's passengers would leave and new passengers would come on and so during that time you had enough time to go out go to the apple store download all your movies for the week go get stuff you need at the uh, grocery store or the pharmacy and then hightail it back to the boat and take off for another week so what i downloaded for the week was different than what you downloaded right so there'd always be a chance to meet up in a pub or on the ship somewhere and go, hey, what'd you get? Want to trade hard drives? And you'd plug in your little hard drives and you'd grab, oh, he's got season all the seasons of Dexter. I'm taking that. And I've got all of uh, Boardwalk Empire. So you take that. So it was trade, 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 trade. Right. And in one of those trades at a pub with a guy from another boat, I came into like 50 gigs of Hollywood sound effects. Oh, that's amazing. Which I was like, it's going to take an hour. Have you got an hour? Because I need this. <laughs> and so I have like specific brands of car doors closing. (laughs) I'll never need it. I need one good car door or maybe two. So it sounds like a different car, but that's it. And so I have all this stuff and I have old super friends sound effects. I have like green lanterns ring and Mr. Freeze's freeze ray. And they're all labeled as such, which is really cool. And so when I got home, I said to Paul and Lee, we're doing this because I have the sound effects. Yeah. So we started recording and editing. And then I had to learn, okay, how do I put up a podcast? Who do I know with a podcast? Because I listen to, I still listen to podcasts, so many. 
and uh, which is like old time radio to me. I'm just listening to a talk show. And I noticed too that like in podcasting, old time radio is a bit of a trend. Like you get the red panda yeah. type thing. You get there's you can listen to old Superman serials as, yeah, as podcast. But what we do is original. Like right. we're improvising yeah. stories that have never been told before, and we're presenting them. As a radio show, so we've had to, even if we do them live, we have a musician and sound effects going on the fly. And then we're putting it out there like an episode of uh, Tales from the Crypt. We have our Crypt Keeper, who's like the last man on Earth, and he's beaming these stories to you. The conceit of the show is that the stories are coming to your podcast as a transmission from the future from the last remaining human who's like, you have to stop these things from happening. And then it kind of gives us leeway to do anything. And the illusionoid is like this humanoid This computer, computer. that destroyed humanity. This giant supercomputer that destroyed humanity. So I think I got the structure as I was listening to a lot of these episodes. Yeah, it's the same every I week. Think, here's the intro. Here's the last man. Here's the episode. So correct me if I'm wrong. Like... The guy, the guy who's doing the announcing, the last human on Earth, is the one who sets up. Yeah, he just sets up this, this week's the, story, the like premise in, for in, the episode. in your future. This will happen. Stop it, and you'll stop. And then you're on. improvising the rest. And then we, yeah, we literally yeah. sit and improvise that. Yeah, and then get Paul to he's the last man. We get Paul Bates to record whatever as the last man. He makes that up, and then we as the intro to the show. So right. we have the announcer, Lee, who introduces this is Illusionoid, and now here's tonight's transmission. And then the, you hear this crackly transmission come in from Paul on the moon right. in the future. And then you get tonight's episode. Yeah. Which is like Rod Serling or the Crypt Keeper going, tonight, you'll hear a tale of terror, blah, blah, blah. So the transmission is like the suggestion. The, we get the suggestion from a title. Okay. Like we'll get fans submit a title or we'll flip open an old book of... Uh, like a Twilight Zone compendium, because all the episodes of Twilight Zone have titles that are okay. like, so far the moon, like just weird right. metaphorical titles. Like we right. did one, um, we did one, we talked about doing one that was, uh, oh God, we just did it yesterday. It was like, uh, all, all is needed is a boat. Like just some weird, like Random. to heaven, the stars, like Non-sucular. with a comma in it. Like it's all just weird titles yeah. that you don't know. You're like, oh, it's the one with Burgess Meredith. Who like I, like that episode I referenced there before was like he's a librarian he's the last surviving man but he's got all these books and everything's great and then he breaks his glasses yeah and it's a uh, it's called enough time something like enough time for all yeah or whatever it is but what do you know when you just hear the title you, you don't no know what idea. it's going to be yeah. so we'll grab that or we'll say you know it's the blank of the blank and it's the night of the squid and then that's our story okay so then the transmission is added later yeah well we okay. record that first okay and we record that at Lee's house like this and we just sit around a table and improvise or at a live show, we'll do it in front of people and we just get what we get. I try to, if I'm editing, I edit out the stuff where it's like, Hey, listen, Kevin, shit. Was his name Kevin? (laughs) Okay. It was Gary. Okay. Listen, Gary, like I'll edit out that. Yeah. But if we crack up, if there's a really funny bit that we screw up with people's names or if any, like I try to leave as much in it as you I can. just go with it. Yeah. That's so you can story, hear yeah. that we're making it up yeah. and having a good time doing it. Yeah. That's amazing. It's, it's the type of thing where like, I think it's needed because there's not a lot of like people that are improvising. No, there podcasts. are like a handful of improv podcasts out there, but a lot of not to disparage any other podcast, right. but a lot of them are just three white dudes sitting around talking about blank. Right. And so I like the idea. Yeah, we're three white dudes, but we're, you know, Lee's 
not white. Uh, and we have a lot of lady guests. We have a lot of um, guests of color. Like we try to because improvisers are everywhere. And there's a very specific context. Yeah. And there's a very specific context. Yeah. Like, you know, I used to say, like, if this is the if the dartboard is podcasts, mm-hmm. you move in a ring. That's comedy. Then you move in a ring that's sci-fi. Then you move in a ring that's old-time radio. Like, we're hitting a very tiny target with our right, podcast. Right, And podcasting is really big in the States, but it's sort of just emerging in Canada. Yeah, so- people are finally catching on. Like, you could put out, you could probably make a lot of money right now putting out a little YouTube video teaching people what a podcast is. Right. Right. So how do you find like the business of podcasting? It's tough. Uh, we, I can say we signed on with a uh, network, a production company this year to produce, put ours out. And it's the first, uh, any kind of interest we've had in it. Plus the first, any kind of money we've seen from it. And it certainly hasn't been a lot. We've been doing this for six years. And so it's a long time to be in a game that no one knows exists. Do it's like sp- being in the Canadian High Lie League. Like no <laughs> one knows it's there. Do you do you have spot do you have sponsors? Or we the network has sponsors, so okay. then we have to do uh, ads for the sponsors for the network, and we have a code, but it's all applied to it. All, like we split it with the company, which okay. is fine because right now half of nothing is nothing. Right. So by all means, if we get ten bucks, take five bucks. And you're care. on Antica, right? Yes, with Antica. Antica uh, was started. Uh, Stuart Cox started the network, and he had the mandate of everything being Canadian and important. Important. And then one of uh, his employees was like, have you heard Illusionoid? And he laughed his ass off and went, we should call those guys. And I think we're like borderline the only funny thing on the network. They're starting to add more stuff now, but we do pretty good. They help with pr- uh, promotion and they get the sponsors and stuff. And I know for sure you're not the only geeky thing on the network. Oh, no. Fred Kennedy has Fred's, his Fred show's great. Not necessarily funny all the time, right, no. but Fred's show is very geeky. And Fred's a friend of ours. We did stuff with Fred on Teletoons. So we, uh, we love Fred. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's awesome. So tell me a little bit about... About how did you get the invite from Podcast Playlist to do this live show that's happening? We got asked by Podcast Playlist to be part of their show because their show, Podcast Playlist with CBC uh, on CBC Radio, is just a show that's like, hey, listen to these podcasts. And so we have a friend in San Francisco, uh, Mark Hershon, who runs a podcast called Suckatash, and his is a comedy podcast podcast. Here are five or six po- comedy podcasts you should be listening to. And so I think Podcast Playlist listen to his show. And he loves us. We met him in San Francisco when we went down for the improv festival. He just pushes us every week. So podcast playlist started hearing about us that way and then realized we were in Toronto. Right. And so got a hold of us and were like, Hey, send us a clip. And so we, okay. And then we got played on their show and we got a few more listeners from that. And so when they were, they're going to do a live podcast recording at the hot Docs cinema there on the 15th. And they're like, I think they wanted a different stage picture than three white guys sitting around talking about stuff. They like, we are a different thing. We're not have a seat and discuss things at a desk. We are a performance. Yeah. So we can be a little more animated and we, you know, but we are still, and we have a live musician and it's improvised. Yeah. Your characters. We're, we're, and, and there's three of us and sometimes there's 20 characters in a show. So we've (laughs) got to have different voices going on and who knows what's going to happen. And that's the other thing. All these podcasts, I'm going to sit down and interview you. That's what our show is. Our show, we don't know until we get there. We can kind of aim our sound effects like it's going to be a haunted house. Whatever it is, just put haunted houses. All your sound effects tonight, just make it haunted house or it's underwater. Every every sound effect you can think of for underwater, put it in the thing. Put it on your computer. And then we go and we know we're going to be underwater 
but we don't know what the story is going to be about. We don't know who the characters are going to be. We don't know anything. So there's no written framework. It's not like no. curb oh, enthusiasm no. with like improvised dialogue. No. We don't have a framework at all. Yeah. We go, we get the title and we go. So uh, depending on, uh, I say this when I host a show, I go, we get the suggestion from you, the audience. So if the show is terrible, your fault. Right. So we're going to do podcast playlist and there's other shows up before us. Right, so we're like, kind of hoping to get a few ideas from those shows oh. to help uh, inform what we're going to do. Perfect. But we might stick it underwater or in a haunted house or in space or whatever. And we see what happens. Yeah, especially if something hilarious happens on one of the other shows. Oh, exactly. We'll make sure like we'll be back. Like, I'll be like, got to remember that or I'll jot it down on, a, on my phone or whatever. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I don't know. Sukin Lee. Oh yeah. Her sleepover show is great. Gonna, is, that's, that's a gold they into a bed and have a chat. Like <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the best. My friend Becky, who's an improviser, just did the show with my friend Cody Diener, who's a pro wrestler. Right. And they just sat in a bed and got interviewed by Suki and Lee. That's awesome. It's so cool. Oh, man. Like, so I really want people to come out to this. Yeah, me too. So so what time is it going to be? It's at the Hot Dog Cinema. I think it's at 8 o'clock on the 15th of June. Okay. Uh, and there's a ton of other shows. Suki and Lee will be there. Uh, there's a whole thing. You have to go to the... It's on the Illusionoid Facebook page. Uh, you can look at that. It's on our twitter at illusionoid pod we're sharing the hell out of it or check out uh, podcast playlist yeah and i i think if you go to hotdogs.ca i think like tickets aren't that expensive i, I want to say 15 yeah like it's not like bad that. they'll fill the place and like 12 for members if you have a if yeah you have if you have a, a hot dogs membership yeah, it's yeah, even yeah, i sure. always say hot dogs and make it think i'm saying hot dogs <laughs> come and get it do you have a hot dogs membership that would be the best totally totally so just to bring it back to comics for a second what does your geek life look like now? Are you still collecting comics or what's uh, I, current nug like? Current nug is uh, I don't collect as much unless I hear about something that like I have friends that run the snail, silver snail. Right. I have uh, my friend Christine runs sidekick comics out on the East end, which is Christine. the greatest place in the world. It's the best you shop want, right now. Do you want a good coffee plus some awesome comics? Exactly. And it's the best. The beauty of it is even if you're just going for coffee and you have no idea about comics, you're organically going to be interested in comics. You're going to see, like when you were a kid, when I was a kid, you're going to see a cover of something. God, there's two books on Christine's shelf right now. They're big hardcover books and they're the worst superheroes and the worst villains like a compendium, like an encyclopedia of the shittiest villains and heroes. <laughs> and awesome. I flip through them and I take pictures and I'm like, they're so expensive. And I'm like, oh my God, am I going to buy these? I feel like it's the new way to make comic shops sustainable, right? Oh, like, gee, it's, a, it's coffee shop plus. accidentally be a comic shop. Yeah, and I like, you got to have a combo business, right? Right. So hers is comics and coffee and it's so good and great Wi-Fi and people meet, uh, um, Connor McCreary, who writes Kill Shakespeare, right. sits there all day writing Kill Shakespeare, yeah. like it, like writing new stuff. Yeah. He's, it's so fun to watch. And I've seen Ryan North there from Dinosaur Comics yeah, and Squirrel Girl. Yeah, sure. Just so fun. Uh, uh, Jeff Lemire shows up, randomly signs comics, puts them back on the shelf. Yeah, like yeah. it's so much fun being <laughs> it's there. So good. So uh, when I go to a place like that, uh, to the Snail or to Sidekick, somebody will say, "Hey, do you know about this? I think you'd really like it." And so the coolest thing I've read in the last year oddly enough not being a marvel guy was the vision comic that tom king wrote oh that was that the was 12 amazing. issues of the greatest thing i've ever that read was and, and i and i came to it late i think a lot of people did because they weren't sure they didn't know yeah. what it was going to be if you're not if you're if you haven't read it go, run there's two uh i think the two six issue collecteds 
if it ever comes out in one big book, buy it. But it, you can go get it now. It's The Visions. It's called The Visions. Well, and we were talking about The Twilight Zone earlier. That's sort it's of so Twilight Zone. Stepford Wife meets Twilight it's so, Zone. It's so like that first thing where he's like meeting the neighbors. <laughs> and then the narrator is like, three days from now, he'll be dead and he'll know why. And I'm like, what? Like, it's so creepy. <laughs> it's so um, And then I be. <sighs> I did a, a video review. You can probably still see it online. Uh, me and my uh, film uh, buddy, Andrew Simic, reviewed every comic of the New 52 when it came out because we're both DC nerds. Did you go to the Beguiling that was selling all 52 no, first issues? No, we did. <laughs> no, we did. We, through the snail, through the silver snail, okay. they gave us the comics and we reviewed every every issue every week for a year. I was I the thought, idiot who bought them all. No, 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 no. And then I was like, this is nonsense. I hated the New 52. I hated everything about it. There were a couple of good things. There were. But like... The rest of it was such garbage. So this DC rebirth, I was like, well, I'm hopeful. And now I'm through through a lot of the websites like io9 and uh, comic book resources and stuff. You get the reviews. Right. So I go online and read them and go, oh, they're back. Everything's the best. Everything's awesome again. So I get excited because there's t- like a bit of this Watchmen thing happening and some Justice Society looks like it's coming back. Red Tornado showed up again. Firestorm's back. Like, I'm just excited about... I, give me Blue Devil and Creeper and I'm done. And I love... Like, the Watchmen thing is so meta because they're using it as sort of the the explanation for why things were screwed up and they kind of are because because that they modernization are. of comics Dark is Knight. what wrecked comics and for a while. It's funny because we talk about how... Dark Knight and Watchmen made everything dark and gritty. Right. And it happened at the same time. And this is, I'm sorry, everybody. I'm sorry. This <laughs> happened at the same time in WWE when Stone Cold Steve Austin became dark and gritty. Right. The attitude. The attitude era was the dark and gritty times of WWE. Well, now everybody's, we always said if Steve Austin was a comic book character, he was the Punisher. He's not good. He's not bad. He'll just kick ass, take names. That's what he does. But now everybody's trying to be the Punisher. You can't all be the Punisher. There has to be good guys. Right. And there has to be bad guys. They overdid it. Oh, my God. Like, everybody. Look, at, look at the early 90s and the Youngbloods and the Spawns oh, and the, all that. You stuff. can't. You can't all be Steve Austin. You can't all be the Punisher. Right. You can't. Because then who's the good guy? How? What's the bar? Right. Like if you're gray and then everybody's gray, and no one's black and no one's white. Right. How do you know the difference? And there were glimmers, like you had your Kingdom Come and you had your New Frontier that sort of reminded people... Of how you need that. Right, exactly. So now Rebirth is that. And I love how they're literally interpreting like an era of comics and the rebound of that era as, as an the actual influence story. on a whole, which they were. <laughs> yeah. It's so crazy. It's so crazy. Yeah. I love it. Awesome. Th- that's a perfect note to end on. Where can people find you online? Uh, you can find me at Nugnargang. We talked about it before. N-U-G-N-A-H-R-G-A-N-G on Twitter. Uh, you can find me at Nugnargang on Instagram. Uh, I'm on Facebook. Don't bug me there. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook or whatever and see what I'm doing. Uh, I do an improvised musical every month called Songbuster, where we just get a suggestion and we do a full hour-long musical. Uh, Illusionoid does live shows everywhere. You can follow at Illusionoid Pod on Twitter and on Instagram. I try to put pictures on it. It's hard when you're an audio podcast but I try to put pictures on it and I do um, 
all sorts of stuff. I do a monthly at the SoCap, the Social Capital Theater on the Danforth uh, called uh, Escapad, where we just take a pad of paper, write down all the suggestions we get and cross them off as we go. And when the pad's done, we're done. Nice. Uh, and I do that with a lot of old Second City alumni, too. Uh, I did a day on People of Earth, this nerdy show. Oh, cool. Uh, so I don't know when that's out. Uh, and I'm doing a day in North Bay next week on Cardinal, uh, on, which is a CTV kind of dramatic series. So yeah. it's not funny. Get yeah. ready for that. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, and in the meantime, I'm on Aftermath on uh, uh, Sportsnet 360, where I literally sit as part of a panel of people and break down the week that was in WWE every week. Wow. I talk about wrestling. I talk about bad guys and good guys. And wrestling was just as much a part for you as comics because I mean like they're, they're real life superheroes it's real it's real comics if you take a little kid to a wrestling show it's bad guys and good guys loudly fighting yeah and your your sketch group your award-winning sketch group yeah, was based on wrestling we were called the minnesota wrecking crew which was the original name of arn and ole anderson yeah uh, and we i just that name always stuck in my head i got a chance to meet vince mcmahon years ago and i got through i was talking to somebody else and i said our sketch group is called the minnesota wrecking crew and when i got to meet vince this guy was like tell vince let him tell you what his sketch troop's name was. And I was like, uh, it's the Minnesota Wrecking Crew. And he goes, oh, yeah, fan. Nice. Like that. He that was great. <laughs> Old school. Yeah, man. it was really cool. I've uh, Through working with Aftermath and all the years of watching wrestling and stuff, I've gotten to meet so many of the guys, so many of the wrestlers. Uh, and it's it's really cool. Like they're performers. Yeah. They're, it's, you know. Jake the Snake Roberts is just a guy playing the part of Jake the Snake Roberts. You know, they'll never tell their old school guys are like that. But the new guys are like, yeah, you know, I jump around in my underwear on TV. Right. That's and how I get my. The Rock is like the biggest thing in Hollywood. He's right the biggest now. thing in Hollywood. But he has. I always say, especially in comedy, you need stage time reps to get better. Right. You don't need training as much as you need reps. You go out there and fail and learn what not to do next time. Right. And The Rock was doing pantomime stage fighting in the round in front of crowds of thousands for seven, eight years. He knows how to be in a movie. Exactly. He might be a little bit overexposed now, but oh, 100%, just, but yeah. he knows what he's doing he knows. and he knows how to do it. Well, yeah. he's not trying to, you know, reinvent the wheel. Yeah. He's like, I'm a muscle bound dude who has a good smile and I got a good personality. I can be a movie star forever. And right. he can, and he's taking advantage of the upswing. Like his agent booked him on, like got a whole bunch of gigs for him yeah. when it was good. And right? he's going to, be black adam right that's insane like when i'm that big a nerd like have you seen wonder woman yet <laughs> yes okay i haven't seen wonder woman yet but i also hadn't seen batman versus superman and last week i made myself watch batman versus superman. the extended cut or the regular cut? extended extended is a little better it's a little better it makes sense more. oh man i was like and like my fiance she's like why are you doing that? And I go, I don't know. I'm a completionist, I guess. I want to. I just want to catch up, just in case there's something. Wonder Woman's in this, so I want to make it make sense. Right. And I, I haven't seen Suicide Squad. Like, I, but I'm a DC nerd. But I know how much the movies have sucked. And now I hear Wonder Woman's amazing, so I gotta go. I will say one thing, and it's not a spoiler. No. But there's a scene in. Batman versus Superman with Wonder Woman that has a little bit more resonance oh, after you've seen Wonder Woman. Okay. It's like they planned it. Oh, great. That's Even great. The, the, well, at least a rag that pays off. Right, exactly. I like it. Awesome, man. It's been great having yeah, you. Yeah, thanks for having me, man. This has been amazing. We didn't even cover some of the other stuff. I mean, we, we'd love to have you back at some for, other for sure, point. For, for sure, for sure. Awesome. So thank you guys for tuning in to this wild ride conversation, and we'll see you next time on Speech Bubble.
Speech Bubble, the podcast that goes one-on-one with Toronto's comic book luminaries. See you next time. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. This episode of Speech Bubble is sponsored by Harry Tarantula at 6979 Young Street. They sell comics and games to bright and imaginative people like you. So go there for your comics fix and go there for their games nights that happen all week. Check harryt.com for the schedule and tell them Aaron sent you.